You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the prophecies of Zechariah. We read the verses 1 to 13. Let's listen then to the reading of God's holy word as we find it in Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful, Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will risk in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons of Zion against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Our text this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, there has never been a week quite like it. None of our weeks can compare with it. None of the weeks of our country can compare with it. Why not even any other week in all of history can compare with it? And what am I referring to? Well, I'm referring to the week that starts today. I am referring to the week that begins with this particular Sunday. Perhaps you saw it already in faint print on your calendars. Under April the 1st, 2012, it does not say April Fools. It says Palm Sunday. At least that's what it says on most of my calendars. So what's with Palm Sunday? Well, it points us back to that very special Sunday long, long ago when our Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And indeed, you can find this event described in every one of the Gospels. They all tell how he entered Jerusalem for the last time. How the people greeted him, how they shouted Hosanna, how they waved their palm branches how they confess, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and many other things. You might say, what a great start to a new week. Only it didn't last. Very quickly, it degenerated into more confrontation with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then in very swift succession, we have Gethsemane, betrayal, arrest, Denial, arraignment, accusation, false witness, Barabbas, mockery, crucifixion, and death. It all happens in one week's time. It's all jammed into these seven next days. This week goes, you might want to say, from the palms to the pits, from the heights to the depths. Yes, and it all began in earnest, beloved, on Palm Sunday. You might say that in some ways, this particular day represents the great turning point in the gospel. And so it's worthy of a closer look. 
So let's examine together what happened on that first day of that incomparable week. I preached to you on the theme, Palm Sunday, the King is coming. And we'll look at lowly transportation, that first of all, human adoration, and finally, ugly devastation. Well, beloved, our text opens and we learn that Passover week is about to begin in Israel generally and in Jerusalem in particular. And as such, you need to understand this really is the holiest week of the year, of the Jewish year. Nothing else compares to Passover week. It represents Israel's greatest feast and festival. Together as a people, they would all get together to remember how the Lord had so miraculously delivered them long ago out of the land of Egypt. And so the people would come. They would come from far and wide. They would come especially for this particular feast, and they would come in huge numbers. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus says, and he may have been exaggerating a bit, but he says that about three million people would come to Jerusalem for this feast. So you can imagine the jam streets, you can imagine the hillsides covered with tents because there weren't enough hotels You can imagine all the noise and the clamor and the tumult. And meanwhile, beloved, the name Jesus had become a household name. For three years now, he had been crisscrossing the land, preaching, teaching, and doing miracles. And his name was on the lips of many. And that especially because of that most recent and perhaps greatest miracle of his of all, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Not Luke, but if you look at John, John, the gospel writer, tells us that this particular Sunday comes right after this huge miracle. So you can be sure the crowds are buzzing with the news of what Jesus Christ has just done. Now, in such an atmosphere, we expect our Lord to perhaps avoid Jerusalem or perhaps to come quietly. You may recollect he had done that before. In previous years, he had been told that the crowds were expecting him and they wanted to make him king. And his reaction had been, my time has not yet come. So either he wouldn't go at all or he would come later and sometimes he would come, as it were, almost in disguise without making waves, without drawing attention to himself. And so we're led to wonder here in Luke's gospel, how will he deal with the Passover feast this year? Will he stay home? Will he come later? Will he come in disguise? What will he do? Well, the answer is not long in coming. For notice that as he and his disciples approach to places near Jerusalem called Bethphage and Bethany, he sends two of his disciples on an errand. He sends them to a nearby village in order to fetch an animal. And you need to understand that probably his disciples were thinking, oh, he wants a lamb a lamb to be sacrificed for the Passover feast. But he doesn't want a lamb. He wants a colt. 
So what's that? Well, the word that Luke uses throughout his gospel is commonly used for a donkey. Only here specifically, it refers to a very young donkey to a colt. Supposed to be one on which no one has ever sat or ridden. Our Lord demands an unridden donkey. But that's not all. For something else as well, Jesus tells them to untie it and to bring it. Notice, no mention is made of asking the owner for permission. No mention is made of any kind of payment either. Our Savior wants a free ride. Now, that's usually a recipe for trouble. No doubt the two disciples must have wondered to themselves how this would play out. You know, to just go up to a young donkey and, and take it, uh, isn't that called donkey rustling? Isn't that a crime? But you notice that none of this, none of this bothers our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the least. Why, it's as if he has all planned it out ahead of time. And as if he knows exactly how the plot is going to unfold. He knows that one of the owners, or maybe both of them, will ask the disciples why they are untying or stealing the donkey. And he knows, too, that it's not going to cause any problems because all they need to tell these owners is the Lord needs it. And everything will be fine. And that's exactly how it turns out. Everything unfolds precisely as our Lord predicted it. Well, fine. So Jesus has a donkey. What now? Well, we are told that the disciples brought it to Jesus, that they threw their cloaks on it, and then they put him on it. And so he rides. Our Savior rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, all of that happens on the surface, but it provokes questions, doesn't it? What does all of this mean? What is the Lord Jesus doing here? In addition, it might well be asked, why does he ride? Why doesn't he walk? It's not that far. And if he really wants a ride, why not a wagon or a chariot or a horse? Sure, why a donkey? Why a special donkey? Why a special donkey conscripted in a special way? Well, the answer to all of those questions lies in the Scriptures. We read together a moment ago from Zechariah chapter 9. What does it say there? Look at verse 9. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see what the Lord Jesus is really doing here? He's serving 
notice that he's about to enter into Jerusalem, not as just one of the crowd, not as just one more worshiper, not even as a noted rabbi. No, he is going to enter Jerusalem in the fulfillment of the scriptures. In fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And that means he's going to enter Jerusalem as the great king. The king of Israel is coming. The Messiah is here at last. And that's why, beloved, he doesn't ask for a cult or pay for it. He's the great king. And kings do not ask for permission, nor do they pay. Kings take. They take what belongs to them. They exercise, as it were, their royal right of confiscation. And in addition, kings do not sit on old stuff. They have a right to what is new. Kings sit on colts, not on nags. So we need to understand that our Savior here as king is exercising his royal rights. He's pulling back the veil and he's allowing the people to see who he really and truly is. But then notice as well that along with royal rights, there are also divine abilities. No king can predict the future and tell in advance how the people will act and react. But Jesus can. He knows what the owners of the donkey will say. He knows what will satisfy them. Truly, our our Lord knows how to direct all things. His glory is on display even when it comes to something as minor and as simple as a donkey ride. But there's more. For we also need to consider that donkey for a moment. If you were a king or queen, A great king. Would you want a donkey as your means of royal transportation? I don't know about you, but I'd probably choose a Ferrari, but they didn't have them back in those days, so I probably would have chosen a horse. And I wouldn't have chosen just any old horse either. I would have wanted a stallion, a pure white stallion, right? Or if we couldn't find a pure white stallion, then I would want a chariot pulled by at least two pure black, if not four or six horses. After all, your means of transport should reflect just how important you are, right? Whenever you, whenever have you seen a king being carted around in a fiat? Well, that's precisely the case here, beloved. 
For this particular means of transport that Jesus teaches or that Jesus uses tells people who he is. Yes, he's a king. But he is not a king in the style of the nations. He is a king, but not one as everyone assumes. Now, what Jesus wants to underline by all of this is that when he comes, he comes as the great servant king. His kingship is not about political power. It's not about military might and fancy castles and fawning people and inflated egos. Rather, he comes to serve. He comes to deal with the real pressing needs of his people. He comes to tackle their sins, their transgressions, their iniquities, their brokenness, their pains, their sorrows, their their burdens. You know, it's noteworthy that John, again, in his gospel, describes our Lord's entry into Jerusalem. And immediately thereafter, he places that incident about foot washing. And in it, our Lord Jesus says to his disciples, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. You see, this king didn't come to have his feet kissed. He came to wash the feet of his followers. He came to serve them. To serve us. You and I. Truly he serves. And he wants a people who know how to serve as well. He wants a people who know how to wash feet. And are we that kind of people? Do we strive to be that kind of people? Do we put the needs of others before the needs of ourselves? You know, this world in which we are living is all about getting and gaining. What's in it for me is the question that everyone seems to be asking. And you can also hear that this past week in response to the federal budget. And, and you can hear it in all the labor strife going on in our province. It's all about me, me, me. But that's not the style of our king. And it shouldn't be the style of his people either. His life was a life of service and sacrifice. Our life should be the same. But then, beloved, getting back to our text, our Savior enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And what is the reaction? I'll notice it's one of great acclaim and adoration. Luke tells us the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Elsewhere, we hear about the bystanders and the spectators joining in. And 
And what do they say? Luke records them as saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It would appear that immediately when the people see Jesus coming riding on this colt, they begin to clue in. And they remember the words of Zechariah 9, and, and perhaps they also remember how cloaks were spread in front of King Jehu long ago. And maybe they think back to Solomon's procession mentioned and described in the Old Testament. And as well, they recollect the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But notice they change something. They change the he to king. Blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. They claim Jesus as their king. But still, that's not all they say, for Luke also records them as saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest What does that remind you of? Who else said something like that? Wasn't it the angels, the angels who sang above the fields of Ephrathah around the time of the birth of Christ? Peace on earth and glory to God in the highest. You see, both heaven and earth greet this king. He receives the praise of men and of angels. A better reception is hard to imagine. Only once again, everything is not quite as it appears on the surface. And why do I say that? Well, because there is this revealing comment in verse 37. First, we read in verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. And fine, but but then pay attention to what follows. This verse goes on to say, for all the miracles they had seen. So the question arises, what what? What moves these people? What what drives them to all of this praise? Do they praise Jesus because they see in him the long-awaited Messiah of Israel? Or and do they adore him as the rightful king? Now, there is another reason at work here. Their claim is tied to his miracles. It's the miracle worker that they are adoring. It's what he did especially for people like Lazarus that stands out in their minds. Miracles, miracles, miracles. It's all about miracles. And you know, sad to say, in many parts of the world, it's still that way today. So many, many people follow Jesus because of what he can do for them. Jesus can make me well. 
Jesus can make me rich. Jesus can make me happy. You see, what drives people to our Savior is not love for Him, is not faith in Him, is not thankfulness to Him. It's not about Jesus as a person. It's about Jesus as Santa Claus. It's not about Him. It's about His gifts, His powers, His miracles. It's all about what we can get out of Him. And how sad and how disturbing that is. And at the same time, it's a reminder to us. Surely a reminder to us to search our hearts. Why are you people here? Why are you following Jesus? What are you doing? What are you after? Is it because you have a shopping list? Is it about what he can do for you? Or does it have everything to do with him? With who he is as a person. With loving him. Honoring him. Praising him. Magnifying him for such a great sacrifice and a wondrous salvation. Is it about the gifts or the giver? But then, beloved, if we meet Jesus, the crowds, the disciples, in this text, we also meet the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And you'll notice they want Jesus to put a stop to what they deem to be the unseemly behavior of the crowd. Teacher! Rebuke your disciples. And notice Jesus answers, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That's a quote from the prophet Habakkuk saying there's no way that the praise that he deserves can ever be stopped. It's just so fitting, so, so right so deserved. If the peoples of the earth will not acclaim him, then the creation will acclaim him. It must. But then if there is rebuke here, there's also something else. There is lament. Luke writes in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why did he weep? Well, because he who knew in advance how the owners of the donkey would react knows just as well what is going to happen to this city. He knows the enemies are coming. He knows how they will overcome her. He, he knows how they will build an embankment and an encirclement around her. He knows how they will slaughter 
and devastate the inhabitants of the city. He knows about the utter destruction that is coming. You know, it's as if he can already see the Romans marching. And march they do. And in 70 AD, they march. And they do precisely what our Savior here predicts. And in the end, they do not leave even one stone upon another. And why? Historians would say this is about politics. And this is about power. This is about Romans who do not like to be resisted. And about Roman supremacy. But again, the scriptures dig deeper. And the Lord Jesus says this happens because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That in spite of the acclaim of his disciples and the crowds, judgment is coming. It's coming because they do not recognize that God has come to them. Because they do not embrace the Son of God in faith. They don't bow before the Messiah. They do not greet their great King. And the proof for all of that, it's evident in all of the other things that happened during that fateful week. For you know as well as I, soon he will be arrested. He will be tried more than once. He will be accused. He will be crucified. He will be killed. And all of that proves one thing, that they do not receive him as their king. As their Messiah, as their Savior. You don't do that to the most precious person in all the world. And so why is all of this written? Why are all of these words preserved for us even today? And why are we still preaching upon them? Beloved, it's all here to remind us and to teach us as well as I might add to warn us. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. They all confront us with the need to believe and the call to repent and to embrace Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, our High Priest, our Mediator. Is that what you're doing in this new week? Embracing Him in faith and not just as gifts. You know that what He said about Jerusalem came to pass. And you can be sure as well that what He says in the book of Revelation that we have been dealing with in the last weeks and months will also come to pass. This king came to Jerusalem as Zechariah had predicted. 
and this king is coming again. But next time he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. And next time he's not coming in humbleness of service. Next time he's coming in power and glory. And next time he's not coming just to some people, but to people everywhere. And next time he doesn't just come to a part of creation, but to all of creation. The king who came is coming again. And do you believe that? Are you preparing for that? Are you looking forward to that? Are you looking forward to him? Your king, beloved, is coming. Truly, truly coming. Long live the king. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.